Welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. Happy Friday, everybody. In this podcast series, I will be speaking to investors, advisors, entrepreneurs, and recruiters who are based all over the world, and we will be discussing how to set up, scale, and operate a world-class recruitment company. Today, I'm speaking to Dave Jenkins. Like myself, he's an Irish man abroad. He is the managing director of Vertical Advantage. They are a boutique recruitment firm that specialise in FMCG and a few other areas as well. He's based in London and he's a very successful young man. He started his career fresh out of uni, moved to London, got into recruitment, went flying through the ranks and hit a glass ceiling. Decided after meeting with James Cann and the Hamilton Bradshaw Group that he would set up his own recruitment business through their vehicle. Did that for a while and we discussed the highs and lows of that um, which, and really his journey has ultimately led him to setting up his own independent recruitment business that he has scaled to over 20 people that operate out of a lot of different countries based in London and He's got a really progressive, forward-thinking mind and was very honest about his journey, some of his own failings throughout it and what he's excited about. It was a really great interview and I love seeing Irish guys doing well abroad, um, especially especially ones who are around the same age as me and who are infinite, infinitely more successful than I probably will ever be. But it's great that I have a vehicle where I can uh, celebrate his success here and you can all learn about it. I think we can all learn lots from listening to David today. And uh, I hope you all enjoy. Hey, Jordan, how are you? David, how's things? Yes, not too bad at all, not too bad. Got the technology to work okay. Good man. Well, we love a good Irishman abroad on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, one of my favourite podcasts. That do you know, yeah, that is a great podcast, by the way. Do you listen to it, yeah? I do, I do. I wrote a blog on it a little while ago. There's some, there's some really, really good ones on there, yeah. Very, He's very good stuff. brilliant interviewer. One of the Amazing. things he does really well is he he kind of wins trust and then he asks really difficult questions when you don't expect it and he tends to get way more out of people because of it i mean yeah i'm kind of hoping you haven't picked up too many of his I, I, this afternoon. i may i may have uh, i may have picked up one or two things from him uh <laughs> definitely um is one of the one of the inspirations uh good podcasts are hard to come yeah. by good interviewers are too and uh and he's he's definitely one of them what's his name again yeah. uh oh, i can't remember he's a comedian as well he does a great he does a brilliant one with paul mcginley um the guy who captained the um the Ryder cup team a couple of years ago and it, so it talks a lot about sport and leadership it's a really really interesting podcast one to listen to definitely. yeah do you listen to any other irish podcasts um there's the second captains. I listened to that. You ever, ever yeah, I'm a subscriber. One? I'm a paid subscriber. So, 
yeah and I'm for my sins as well I listened to the final furlong podcast as well that probably gives you an insight into my life around horse racing and football and all those kinds yeah of things. so um, it's funny Irish men of our generation it, it seems like we spend we spend a lot of our time listening to those podcasts and off the ball and then <laughs> sometimes some of us also listen to a bit of blind boy for, to get a bit of sensitivity into our lives yeah, <laughs> I I don't know if we're all falling into the same category, yeah. or or being targeted yeah. by the same by the same people. But uh, but yeah, it's a yeah. great time for Irish podcasting. We're just yeah, just going through the same traumas in yeah. life, probably. So thanks so much for coming on. Um, r- really appreciate your your time. You uh, you've had a good journey in the industry, and we're going to jump into some of that. I suppose to kind of kick us off, how how did you? How did you fall into this weird and wonderful world of agency recruitment? Yeah, I think I've probably got the most traditional path into recruitment, which is the, you know, completely fell into it without really knowing what I was doing. Um, I kind of got out of university in kind of the early 2000s. All my mates were going on to graduate schemes. What did you for, study? Uh, management and marketing. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so yeah, I did so exactly the same. Incre- yeah. Incredibly, incredibly bland. Learned, learned, you know, lived away from home, so kind of learned how to cook and socialise quite well, and you know, went to a few lectures. Yeah. That was the, the so I did a, I did a master's um, in marketing, and the guy, ne- the guy oh, next to me said to me, he said, uh, he said, I'm not sure what I've learned here. I think, I think we've learned, I've learned common sense in terms of business strategy, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. I think maybe yeah. marketing would be more interesting to do now because everything's measurable and small businesses can implement it. But then it was the purveyor of big businesses and, you know, theories that, yeah. that you can only apply after doing admin for somebody for 20 years. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a great memory of one of my first lectures in, in my first year being taught by... In, in business being taught by a guy who was a kind of a, I was up at, in a university in Edinburgh and a Scottish kind of businessman was coming in to do some lectures. And he said, the first decent bit of money, you should spend it on putting decent clothes on your back. And I thought, oh, that's a really great bit of advice. And then I looked at him and he was wearing a kind of off yellow kind of shirt with a salmon kind of colored tie. And I was like, yeah, you know, kind of it, that really got me thinking. So yeah, there you go. That was one of my takeaways wow. from the university. There, we, there we go. The bit that the bit that sank in, and you went. I don't. I don't know yeah, if I'm going to get what I expected out of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But um, yeah, my friends were kind of looking to go on to graduate schemes for banks and um, corporates, etc. And I, being from Dublin originally, after university, I went back home, kind of spent a bit of time there picked up a job you'll know for the bank for allied irish bank pretty quickly um and kind of started working there and and enjoyed it but kind of never kind of felt fantastic about kind of working for a huge corporate and when i talked to them after about seven or eight months about career development progression they were kind of like look you're going to do that job for two years before kind of making the step up to the next role and I just kind of felt like I was ready for a new challenge, wanted to step on. And they probably thought I was a bit of a jumped up upstart um, that thought they knew a lot more than them. So I handed in my notice and I booked a flight to London for the next week. My sister was living over here. So um, 
and yeah, I moved over and I quickly needed to find a job. And luckily, 2002, there was lots of jobs for, you know, young, ambitious salespeople at that time in recruitment, media sales. And yeah, within two weeks, I, I had a couple of job offers on the table and kind of decided to go with, yeah, with a small kind of recruiter based out of West London um, specializing in the retail and consumer marketplace and, and was there for seven years. Wow. It's uh, it's funny, you know, you guys in Dublin have such an advantage over us country people, you know. You, like, <laughs> do you know how hard it is when you're from the country to get up to Dublin for an interview and try and figure out a place to live? Back then, before the internet was probably properly working at uh yeah it was a it was definitely definitely a struggle i got i got rejected from every every bank that i applied to they they saw through through me quicker than they saw through you and uh, unfortunately i didn't get into recruitment until 2011 right okay you got a good head start on me what were those uh what were those early days like that was really before linkedin hey yeah, yeah, absolutely before LinkedIn. So, yeah, and and I, do you know what? I joined, the, the I had a, a couple of opportunities, I think, with Badenock and Clark and a, another business called Finance Professionals, which were kind of pretty much bigger, kind of more city-based recruiters at the time. And I went for this smaller business because I really, really liked the people that I met there. And I kind of, the space resonated with me, you know, the retailers, the consumer brands, I kind of knew them, understood them. And I kind of wanted to work, work in as something that I was interested in. And then actually, I think that was that for me was really, really important. And it's still something that's really, really important today. I really like a lot of the brands and the businesses that we work with. I'm a customer of theirs. And every time I go to meet them, I'm like hugely enthusiastic about and I just I struggle to do that probably with some financial institutions mm. and IT and tech so that was the first thing for me was that I actually was the clients I was trying to work with I was really really interested in um, and then the business was was a, you know they kind of done their five or six years of building their foundation and then they were going into the next phase of growth so whilst it was um it was set up by a guy who was ex-Michael Page. So there was a little bit of a kind of a, probably a mini Michael Page kind of vibe going on was there in there. Just, was there discretionary um, bonuses? There was discretionary oh, bonuses. That's the, um, that's the case or so of, uh, of recruitment, isn't yeah. it? The, the greatest that trick was, the devil uh, ever pulled. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But um, yeah, after, after being there for a few years and getting to a slightly more uh, senior level, I was able to lobby for a slightly different scheme, um, which certainly helped um, in terms of talent attraction. What was your What, what was yeah, your life I mean, like in London compared to Dublin? How did you find it? Uh, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, I mean, I was on my sister's couch for the first couple of months, which was was um, painful. And the the basic salaries in those days weren't great. Not that they're phenomenal today. Um, so there wasn't loads of discretionary spend, but it was just a great, it was a great place for, you know, for, for kind of young Irish guy to, to kind of to be and a kind of lots of other friends kind of migrated over probably Ireland's greatest export has, has, has been its talent through kind of out the years. And I would say I was probably at the lower grade of that talent, but um, there were lots of other guys and girls over here that I knew and, and we formed a great social circle. It's funny, um, it's funny Peter, next Pat, did, did you find that those people that you met at the start of your journey are probably the ones that 
became your closest friends? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I, and they're probably some of, some of my closest friends. Yeah, it's, so, it's, uh, it's a common theme among expats. And I remember, I remember doing that as well in Australia. It was the group that I came in with that, uh, that I probably became the closest with as opposed to all the others. Yeah, and, you know, I've got lots of really, really good friends kind of back home. Um, but I think the shared experience of London and kind of starting your career here and building your life here and then, you know, finding your partner and all that kind of stuff. I think that's, you know, that's, that's a really life-changing time, kind of 20s into 30s. So you described that the perception would have been uh, a, a jumped up young man. Young man. Yeah. What, yeah. what was it that that employer was able to, kind of grab your ambition and keep you in the business in a market where people like me i'm sure would have would have been going hey i can get you 10 grand more or the why, why, don't, yeah. why don't we get you over to new york like that's it's growing faster you know what what was it that 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 the leaders in that business were able to kind of harness your ambition yeah I, do you know what it was it was and, and it was everything that the corporate wasn't in terms of, of, of working kind of for the bank and what I could see. It was what you put in here. It's a pure meritocracy. It doesn't matter that somebody else has four or five years experience and you've only got one. If you deliver for us, if you build teams, if you start up areas, if you, you know, if you drive revenue for us, we will keep on progressing. You will keep on moving you forward to the point where I get, I went from, you know, graduate consultant to director of the business in seven years and was gifted shares in the business. Were they you real know, shares? You know, real. They were real <laughs> Cause, shares. Because um, there's a lot know. of shares out there that aren't real shares, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I've met a few of those people who've, who've been through that journey as well. Um, they were real shares. Um you know, but ultimately, you know, as we know, the shares only really mean something kind of depending on how the kind of the dividends are going to be worked out and, you know, what the exit kind of plan is for, for those who are minority shareholders. Um, and I think what the, maybe getting the shares was maybe the start of the end for me, which is a really, really weird way of kind, I can of, imagine. Um, of, kind of looking at it. Well, you must have been pretty young in your first leadership position there, right? Yeah, yeah. So exactly a year to the day of when I joined was when I was promoted and given my first person to manage. So I was 12, 12 months in. So I hadn't really um, you know, picked up all the, the leadership uh, training that I needed um, to take that on. What have um, what, what you yeah, over I, the years? I think I've just, I've become so much more patient and so much more understanding of people uh, the older that I've got. At that time, I think I just, I, I, I probably wasn't really a very good manager and I probably wasn't a very nice person in, from a management perspective, um, yeah. if I'm being completely honest. I think young honest. men can be quite self-involved, can't they? Absolutely. I'm speaking about myself as uh, much as anything, but yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think the first three or four people that I managed, I think I probably felt like I could do all the client management, all the business development, I could give them vacancies and roles to work on. I could help them fill them. And collectively, like I could kind of nearly do it all, but just deliver it a bit through them. And, and I just kind of, I, as, I, as I kind of grew entities, I realized that I'd have to delegate a lot more. I'd have to put trust in people a lot more. And actually to do that, I was going to have to properly train them and properly coach them as opposed to just 
giving them tasks to do and then getting them to report back to me when they'd done them. How were you able to kind of build them up and not make it all about you? Did yeah, that take, yeah, that take I was. And, and that skill? It didn't. It didn't take. It didn't take as long as it didn't take as long as it could have done. Um, I think there were a few. I had a few reports where one in particular that stands out that was a particularly talented young lady, and she decided to to move on from the business fairly kind of quickly. And I think I realized at that time, hey, do you know what? You could have managed this so much better. You would have retained her. You would have developed her. She could have been like a second line leader for you in the future. You got to really, really think about this. And I, you know, I put my hand up at that point and said, I think I need to go on a couple of leadership courses. I need to drop the ego probably more than, more than it probably, uh, that's more than I thought at the time. Like you're, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of laughing at, at that piece about the ego, but it's like, it's really hard because the whole thing within agencies is they build your ego. They make you feel bulletproof. Yeah. They, you're part yeah. of that ecosystem and they build that up. So to then be told that you have to manage it and build somebody else's ego, that that's a tough transition for somebody to yeah. kind of realize and get. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, I was 23, 24 kind of at the time. So, you know, I, I think at, at that time there, you know, I was still, I was, I, and I'm and still actually far more so today, still really, really willing to learn and open myself up to things. And I think that experience really, really then from a management perspective, really, really changed me and really, really then made me think about things differently. And actually then I really started to cultivate teams, grow teams, start to think more strategically about the sensible areas of growth that we could um, take the business in. And actually that, that was a, a, a really, really, um, unfortunately it wasn't a great situation, but it was a really, really positive experience. For me. I was there, uh, whose podcast was it I was listening to? It might've been, might've been another Irish one or it might've been the second <laughs> captains. Uh, I think it was Eamon Dumphy's actually for my sins, but uh, he was talking about the leadership at Ryanair. And uh, your man Ryan, who owned the company, is it Jim? Mm. What, what was his name? Anyway, the the, the owner of the company. O'Leary. No, O'Leary was uh, was his understudy. Yeah, okay. Um, it would have been who he gained a lot of the leadership uh, stuff through, and they called it birdship management. So he'd come in, hammer okay. people for one week or for one day in the week, and then he'd do it from a distance. But one of the thing, and O'Leary does that still, and one of the. One of the reasons they think that works is because too much familiarity breeds apathy when it comes to management. Have you, over the years, managed to find that balance between being being on somebody or being being able to give them space? And how do you how do you manage that relationship? Do you have a set way of doing it? Um, I think the these days, I think that um. I've probably got a yeah a more blended approach. I'm 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 probably of the far less kind of aggressive kind of on top of people kind of hard KPI driven setting very you know very sharp smart targets. That's probably slightly less the way that that I would manage these days. Probably manage a lot more kind of through a quality driven approach. Um, we give a lot more ownership to people, particularly in in, in a vertical advantage in this business. So. I think I'm probably a, a bit more hands-off and a bit more trusting these days 
than I was in those days. But I think that, that we get results um, through the way that we work and through our culture. And that, that works for us. But I, you know, having listened to a few of your podcasts and knowing some of the other people that you've talked to, I certainly know that's not the way that, that every business will do that. And different people get there in different ways. Yeah, absolutely they do. I, I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. Like it's just, uh, I think if you, whatever you do, you have to set a course to it. Yeah, it's, and it's a different thing. You know, some businesses will, will have quite strict KPIs, right, about call times, CVs, candidate interviews, et cetera, et cetera. I'd far prefer to have ratios around, you know, what people deliver from a, a volume perspective through to what they deliver kind of through a process, first interview, second interviews, number of clients met. I, I think that's a far better way of measuring quality. But it depends on your market. It depends on your space. And you've, you've got to do what's appropriate to, to where you are at the given time and also where the life cycle of recruitment is, because what worked in 2003 certainly isn't working in 2019 in a lot of, in a lot of situations. Yeah, it, I like to think of it as do more, but do it better. Mm. Gary V calls it working harder and smarter. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. So you're a young guy living in London. You're starting to make good money, right? You're, you're starting to believe your own hype. Yeah, better, better than the now. Yeah, I know. Well, listen, this is the this is what young men go through, and especially especially when things have gone well for for you, you you haven't really hit a down point. How how did that recession treat you? Well, so the the I suppose the interesting part of my story is that um, from. When I left the business that I was with after seven years, I invested, I, I did a co-invest with a, with a private equity firm and a kind of a team of guys that, that came with me. And we launched the new business startup in April 2009, which is just the quarter where the economy was plunging to its all-time low at minus 2.4% growth, I think. Um, so that was where we kind of then built the startup, which called it a business called Exergo, which is backed by Hamilton Bradshaw, which is James Cairns VC. Um, Great. Business. Can we jump into the, the, the planning stage of that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you know, I, I, I was thinking kind of around options and what I should, what I should do, um, what that would look like in terms of kind of my next step. I felt like I'd reached a glass ceiling kind of by, the middle to the end of 2008 there I reported to the same guy for a number of years I was a director I was sitting on the board but I, I wasn't there was no I wasn't progressing I wasn't learning anything more if you could if you, spoke, could, if you could transplant yourself into your boss's shoes in that moment what could have he have, what what could have they have done to have retained you I think he could have um unfortunately probably the only thing I think at that stage he could have done was step aside um, and say, out of his role, but say, look, your remit is now, you've got complete ownership over your area, you report through to the MD, and this is kind of, and we're now, I'll, I'll run one bit and run, you run the other. But ultimately, you know, that wasn't going to happen, right? He was the commercial director looking after the overall business. I looked after probably 40% of the business, but I still reported through to him instead of the MD. So I think, like, in all honesty, that it wasn't really a situation he could massively change. And we we're, you know, we were good friends and we're still good friends. Um, but not really just, I don't think there was huge amounts he could do. You, it sounds like you outgrew, you outgrew it. 
Yeah, I felt, I felt, I felt like, yeah, I just, but I, I think it was, it was partly the ownership piece, but it was partly the learning. I, you know, I really, really, I, I said I was exposed to board meetings, um, you know, which were day long board meetings where I didn't really feel like the direction and, and what I was picking up from that was 100% the right way. And if you think about it, the guy, like so many who, who set up recruitment companies, you know, you're in the back bedroom or the kitchen table with a laptop and a mobile phone and you go, you know, that's how so many recruitment companies start. And this had grown into an 80 person recruitment come from that into an 80 person recruitment company. But the management leadership of owning and running that company, like the guy, the guy who owned it was a, was a, was a lovely, lovely guy, but he hadn't been taught how to be an MD of a business before. He was a senior consultant before he set up his own business. Mm, so that, that, that is interesting. So I can imagine that at this stage you were thinking, I probably know a bit more than you deep down. Like that would have been your truth. Uh, well, well, I think, I, I don't know. Do you know, I think the, the answer really is I, I didn't know how to run a recruitment business either. I knew how to run a, a team of 25 people and how to drive a, an, an area of recruitment. But I didn't know about a PL. I didn't know about what ratios I should be looking at. I didn't know about operational costs, any of those things. So I think the next step for me, and my commercial director didn't know them either, to be honest. So I think what the next thing for me was, how am I gonna get that learning? How am I actually gonna learn how to properly run a business and gain mentors and coaches that are going to show me how this is really, really done. I can do the recruitment bit, no problem, but the business bit, I'm still a bit on the dark is as to what the best way is. And that's what kind of led me to, to James and to the team that he had there because you had some exceptionally intelligent people who've done phenomenally good things in recruitment working within that organization. So the opportunity to be co-invested in a business and be you know a significant shareholder but also to get all that learning not only from his team but also from all the other businesses he had invested in at the time was a was a as much of a pull as the pull of do you know what just going and, and setting up and doing my own thing yeah it, it it sounded like you you probably needed a mentor at this stage as much as anything else yeah yeah yeah, I think so. I in, think so. In, term, um, in terms of that delivery piece from James and his team, what, what did that look like from what they presented you? What was, what was the vision that they helped put forward? And what, what were those ratios that you felt you didn't know that you know now? Yeah, um, well, it's, it, it's really, really interesting. So, and I think it's, it's actually what I what I've kind of learned there and then kind of then needs to be kind of massaged into what like the, the real world realities of growing a recruitment company are. So there's kind of a middle between what's genuinely achievable if you're trying to scale a business very, very quickly. Um, so, you know, we're talking about ratios between salaries that you pay your staff versus the overall net fee income or GP on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis. Um, whether that's kind of the revenue making people in the business or whether that's overall, including the operations people that you've got. Um, I think they, they had very, very um, defined metrics as to what they would want to try and achieve to hit the profitability levels that, that, that would be expected from a, a kind of a Hamilton Bradshaw expected business. Um, and they were, they were, 
you know, we, we were able to hit those and to achieve the growth at a lot of the time. But when it was when it was tough and we didn't have we didn't hit the numbers, that was when, you know, you really, really did feel the stick before you got mm. the carrot. Um, because I think for anybody listening, the, the, the model, from my understanding, is, OK, you're they own a large percentage of of your business. But the, the yep. aim is that you're part of a wider group. And when they head towards an exit, which they eventually will, you'll get a larger multiple of of selling a business than you would do individually. And that's the real pull, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, the, you know, the, 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 the remit generally is, and this, the, as a startup, we actually weren't aligned to one of their groups. So, you know, the Eden Brown group, which they're the wider group of that, which is, I think, HB, HC, which, which exited a couple of years ago to Graphite Capital. Like businesses like that would, would have its own startups. We were actually a pure kind of standalone startup. But yeah, the plan was, you know what, you know, three to five years, we'll grow and we'll scale this business. We'll either bolt on with another group of other like-minded leaders and, and look for a kind of a, a group exit. Or, you know, you guys could do a management buyout or, you know, there could be any, any variety of different things. And it's not kind of prescribed. That's kept quite vague because it's let's see what happens and we can't predict what, where we're going to be in three to five years time. But the budgets are set out kind of three years in advance to get to that business of, you know, 50, 60 people from a standing start of five. Did you know that the world had ended when you uh, when you started the business? (laughs) Um, Do you know what? I, 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 you know, still, still, I'm going to come across like all I'm coming across here is an incredibly naive individual. But we weren't thinking that way. You know what? We we really, really were not thinking that way. We were able to get a brilliant office space for a phenomenally cheap amount of uh, rent, having been based in a kind of a Hammersmith backwater for for seven years. We, we had an office in Mayfair. We had a brilliant, compelling proposition. We had a low operational cost, and we had a team of exceptional billers in the room. So it didn't feel like the world's coming to an end. It felt like the world's only just getting started, and we actually just built incredibly well from that kind of low base and were really, really attractive as an employer because at a time where everyone else was letting people go and making cutting, changing commission schemes and cutting things, we were going completely the the other way. So actually it was a really, really compelling story to take to the marketplace and it allowed us to attract some phenomenally talented people that, you know, in a different time and I'm, you know, here are 2019, I think, Vertical advantage is phenomenally compelling, but it's more challenging now than it was 10 years ago to attract those people. Well, I suppose because in a lot of the traditional fields, say accounts in finance or, or banking, all those guys would have been laid off and you would have got yeah. your pick. What was it about the niche that you were after that allowed you to be successful during the recession? Because it, it seems strange to me. It, it's... Well, the, the, it was the, the retail and kind of FMCG consumer space, so UK and internationally. So international was, was, a, was an excellent market for us and, and continues to be a strong market in, in, in kind of consumer. So 
that that was good. The the main part of retail that was really really badly hit and it continues to be badly hit. You know, it's it's a very tough market. Is the operational side of things, store management, retail management. You know, you can't go, you know, a, a week without another retailer kind of going to the wall. So that's that's a really really challenging space. So we we actually moved out of that very very quickly. And then the rest was sales and marketing stuff. And it was just around the time when digital was starting to get going in the consumer space. So we won some big, big projects. Um, and yeah, we're, we're able to do quite well. Supply chain was another area that, that, that because of the nature of kind of how the recession was affecting people, supply chains were being evolved and changed all the time. And actually that brought the onset of more recruitment. So we, it, it wasn't... Um, I wouldn't say it was a fluke that was where we that was where we knew the marketplace was but the good things around kind of uh you know working with, with mentors like the guys at hamilton bradshaw was they very very quickly realized that that retail operational piece wasn't going to work and we just were very very quick to say hey do you know what let's just forget about that and focus on the areas where we really really can grow and scale this so business. i think you were being quite nimble in the way that you were you were approaching the marketplace were was it a case of having lots of people in london and they were working the international market from their desk in London? Yeah, yeah, it was predominant, predominantly working the international market, but mainly in Europe. Probably um, Dubai as in well. The, in the kind of, a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of Dubai and Saudi as well. Um, struggle sometimes to get the cash out of the clients once you've done the deals there. So we didn't want to try and get ourselves into too much mm. trouble. So um, we predominantly stuck to that European space and a little bit in Asia. You, you reached a point with the with this operation that you thought you know i'm i'm probably better going out on my own yeah yeah so we were you know we grew the business from six to 25 people in two and a half years um very very successful very very kind of um strong trajectory of growth but i think in 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 these situations where you're not the majority shareholder um and you know you feel like you're doing the you know the you and the team there are doing the kind of the core of the work there inevitably kind of comes conversations about well okay what's this look like what's the vision what's your vision for the future what's our vision for the future i think those conversations kind of happened over a period of time and actually the reality of the the difference of the vision between some of those in the business and some of those kind of sitting within the the, the pe house ultimately meant, meant that we were never going to be aligned. And actually, the best thing was kind of for me to kind of step aside and let somebody else who shared their vision take that forward um, for the good of business and the team. And that's kind of, that's what we did. So then as a result of that, I then had kind of, was kind of got, it, got some fair value on my shares, but had a year out of the marketplace really where I was kind of looking at what, what that next step was going to look like before eventually coming to, to the point where I launched there's this an, business. There's an interesting probably lesson there that from the, from, from the start when you said you would just kind of go and see where the vision led to. And then by mm. the time you had the vision, you realized, actually, we're going to, I'm going to do something else. Was there, was there any way, yeah. if you had a time machine, you, you would have set out and fought for that vision harder at the very start? Mm. Or... It has it just been a, 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 an evolution of your vision and, and, and learning as you've gone? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the time machine question is a, an often asked question to me by, you know, former colleagues, friends, um, etc. I think 
I do look back uh, and there's again huge huge amounts of learnings as to thing we things we could have done differently and and things we could have changed but if you dwell too much on that stuff you know it'll end up kind of be, you'll, you'll end up kind of beating yourself up about it I think my kind of way of viewing these things is you've got to take the learnings you've got to keep moving forwards you're never going to get things right all of the times and as much as you know I dearly dearly would have loved that to have gone in a different direction it wasn't going to be so instead of dwelling on it you know you have to take the learning you've got to move forward um and that's kind of what what I was able to do relatively yeah, quickly so with that in mind you move on there, there were some things that you've learned there's some things that you probably leave behind. What what were the things that you learned in that time that you brought to your new business? And what are the things that you wanted to leave behind? Yeah, so so I think that I what what I learned was all the things that I hadn't got in the first seven years, I absolutely got, I you know could not could not even quantify how much I learned about the industry, running a business. I got so much exposure to so many hugely experienced people, MDs, owners of businesses, and got to pick their brains on a, you know, on a more or less a daily or weekly basis around how their businesses ran. So it gave me a great understanding of that. Also gave me a good understanding of, you know, the private equity piece, the corporate finance piece as well, and how that works. Um, so that when I stepped out of it, I, I felt like, I hadn't felt the, you know, when after the seven years that I, I, I felt like I was able to truly run my own business, scale my own business, knew what the likely pitfalls were going to be. Um, I still had, obviously, still had had more to learn. And you all, as I said before, you always have new things that you can learn. But I felt truly equipped then at that stage to be able to do my own thing. Um, so that was great. In terms of things to leave behind, I. And it's probably what I've most tried to take forward into um, into the, the the vertical advantage businesses that people are absolutely your number one asset. You're you're they are the people. They aren't numbers on a page. They aren't a ratio or a figure. They have feelings, motivations, desires that go far far outside of their billing levels or their salaries or you know the kpis that they've been set the previous week so to really really understand about in my opinion driving a a great business fundamentally has to come down to creating a a fantastic culture and a brilliant place to work sure it's got to be successful and it's got you know it, it needs to have ambition it doesn't always need to have ambition but i wanted it to have ambition but that cultural piece i think at times, and this can, I think this could be said of any kind of private equity backed environment, that, that sometimes it's not, it's not always about the people, but when you're in a recruitment based business, it, it has to be, you know, and I, and I think that is, that's hugely, hugely important. Um, when you were putting together your strategic plan to farm this business, you, yeah. you've had two very different experiences so far in terms of you work for a guy who's a senior con who developed a big business and you, you kind of got to an unstructured level of seniority to running your own business through the most structured conglomerate of recruitment owners out there. Yeah. When you're putting your plan together for this business, did you start by saying, 
the here is where I want to exit in ten years, in 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 five years, he and work backwards from all the stuff that you'd learned. Or how how did like what was your vision at that stage? No, I, I, you know, absolutely not. Absolutely not. on the contrary. Um, I I set up the business and I set up the vision and the plan to to basically say that this is this is the last company I'll ever work for. This is this is it. This is you know this is, I'm hoping this is the only company that I work for, and I don't intend on retiring in five, seven, ten years time or anything like that. I so I'm not setting those goals or those visions. I had milestones in place. So I had where I wanted to be after two years, where I wanted to be after four years, and where I wanted to be after seven years. So I and I and I had that in mind. Um, but I didn't, they weren't exit related or, you know, realizing kind of value or anything like that. They were far more about um, how the business would look, the markets that we would be in, the markets that we would be operating in, um, the size and the structure of the organization. Um, and that was, that was how I kind of set my goals for the future. It wasn't, it wasn't, I think... The focus, if you start with a view to exit, you know, I don't think that's the right way to, to go about it from a recruitment perspective. If things happen, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the line and someone comes and offers a big check, okay, let's let's have a conversation at that time. But I think it's an incredibly dangerous precedent to start out thinking that way. You'll know a lot more about this than me, but I'm hearing it's a lot harder to sell a recruitment agency these days. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what type of numbers do you have to do to get a decent multiple on a company? I think that it's clearly there's there's a lot of different variables. The, the split between temp and perm, um, the 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 international side of things, um, whether you're kind of number of offices, um, where your kind of consultants are in their life cycle and the kind of the model of your business, the markets that you're in, obviously. So there is a lot of factors. I think the, the broad kind of numbers that are kind of are spoken to me about from the people that I'm still connected to in that marketplace is that if you're doing over a million in EBIT, you're probably, depending on the size of your business, you're probably looking at anything from four to six times multiple, anything below a million, it's and it's going to be anything between two and four times, depending on where you are, and then you know go from there. But you know you probably need to be doing four or five million in fees to be a of a scale of a decent sized business to be doing a million EBIT. So that's a that's a fair way to go. Yeah, that's you're talking 40, 40 50 consultants at the, yeah, at the top absolutely. range on that. Um, and so that's that that's that's really interesting. So you 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 set out you set out your vision this time, you. How did you manage to, was it from day one, is it just you and a phone? Is it you and a couple of partners? Is it you and three or four people? How did you fund that? Yeah, so... so when You're I, not so independently the, wealthy the, at this stage, I'm taking it. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no. Well, obviously, I was, I, was, I was kind of paid out on my shares, so that, that was helpful. But I, in the year that I had... Sure, but London's I, not cheap, right? <laughs> no, 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 I, you know, not, not at all, not at all. Um, so I, I did some consultancy work for a couple of guys who'd set up recruitment com companies as senior cons in the back bedroom, but had grown their businesses to eight to 10 people. 
So I help them with some of their growth plans, kind of a bit of consultancy slash non-exec kind of work um, in that kind of year. So that helped me build up a little bit of a pot of cash. And then I sat myself, because I moved away from the billing side personally over the previous year and a half, I kind of said, look, I need to really, really get back into this myself. So I took an office in Farringdon um, on my own for six months and just sat down and said, look, I've got to, while I'm building the brand and building all this, I've got to, I've got to go and build myself. I've got to get back on the tools so that when I join and start hiring people, they're seeing me lead and seeing me do this from the front. Um, so I did that and I, I built, built a few quid. Um, and then by the time that kind of, I then kind of been paid on my shares, I kind of developed, I wouldn't say it was quite a war chest. I don't know. Like it's like, like a, a very, very small battle chest um, of cash to then start growing and scaling the business, hiring some people. So I think we grew to like four or five within kind of a year and then kind of up to seven, eight, and then kind of incrementally have kind of grown the business kind of year on year since then. Still went down kind of one or two blind alleys that probably should have dealt with a bit quicker that we didn't. What were they? I opened up an office in Leicester. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Why? <laughs> yeah, because I had a great guy working for yeah. me who wanted to move back to Leicester, and I believed in him, and I thought he was a good guy. He's a great guy. He's working for himself up in Leicester now. Um, and we hired a couple of people up there, but we were never able to really get that office scaled and kind of moving forward. And the vision was that that office, because it was an hour and 15 minutes from London, you know, it was relatively easily accessible for me, but that could cover the northern part of the UK and the Midlands, and then the south could be covered from from the London head office. Um, but we just could, we just couldn't quite get there. And look, after two two and a half years, we we closed that office and we redeployed all that resource back to London, and then that's as a result. You know, that's probably two and a half three years ago. We more or less doubled the size of the business in that time by dedicating the resource solely to London. But- the world's changed a lot in the last in the last few years, um, especially even since two thousand and eleven, when when you exited your business. What what type of things are you keeping an eye on at the moment to make sure you're ahead of the curve, and you're able to grow and attract the right people and 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 just make your business as good as possible. Yeah, I, I think because we're we're in quite an interesting space, right? So so we our, our client base is predominantly FMCG, fast moving consumer goods businesses. So you know the Procter and Gamble's, Unilever's, Nestle's of this world, and then kind of associated marketing agencies, consultancies, etc. That work within that. So digital and e-commerce is is a big big part of that, and. And, and where those businesses are kind of looking to go, but they're really only getting started on that kind of journey. Um, and it's quite unique, whereas some, there are a lot of other sectors that are probably a bit further ahead on that journey. So we're developing a lot of specialism in and around kind of that marketplace. And then where supply chain kind of, and the physical movement of products from A to B to C to get out onto the shelf at Tesco or Sainsbury's or wherever it is, there's a lot that's being implemented. That there's a lot where technology is affecting that marketplace. So if you take like a, an Acado, for example, their share price has absolutely flown in 2018, not as a result of phenomenal performance from the Acado business itself, but because their technology is so, so strong, 
in terms of home delivery, they've been able to patent that and sell that to other huge retailers. So actually, if you think about that piece where, you know, there's going to be huge opportunity for growth in the future, anything that's kind of AI, kind of blockchain led, that will affect the markets that we're operating in in consumer are going to be big, big opportunities, mm. I think. And if you could uh, set up an office anywhere in the world now, knowing that you have a bit of a global reach already, a bit of knowledge on where the money's going and all that. What, yeah. Where excites you in the world? Because you're at that point, without knowing you, you're at that, just from looking from the outside, you're at that point where you have the experience, you know, you've been in business for a, a while, you've got over 20 heads now, like you've got your brand, you've got everything going. It, 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 some, something must be tapping you inside saying, there's a market out there that you could really rinse at this stage. Yeah, yeah. I think, do you know what? I, I was often, I was often told, you know, before, you know, and I obviously didn't listen to this piece of advice when we set up the Leicester office. You know, that you know, you need to conquer Chiswick before you go on, and you and, and you set further kind of things afield. And I still feel like there's parts of this UK marketplace we've yet to go, and we've yet to really, really. I really it. don't believe I in think... that. That saying, I like, I, <laughs> I think that's complete horseshit. And right, why? Because look, the world, like whenever that phrase came out, that was before, like, that was before you we had the technology to recruit anywhere. If you look at, if you look yeah. at the fastest growing companies out there, the ones who are where are they making the most money? They're they're yeah. UK centered, but they're not making the most money in the UK. They're making the most money yeah. in Germany and the USA. And yeah, it, it the old adage of 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 you know you have to conquer one thing first like that that's wartime yeah. bullshit in my in my head yeah and I, and i th- and i think for me so i i think that's and, that, and that's absolutely a fair point and, and you know what you're probably right and you're exposed to a far greater number of recruiting businesses probably making far more money than we are i think probably to do it from the uk and to do it better from the uk first before landing mm. expanding in another region is probably what I was about to say. To Before I jumped on your throat, we need to grow. We need to grow. We need to grow the UK entity, yeah. right? But we also, we also, I think, you know, if you're going to go up and set it, set up in, you know, uh, let's say Germany, yeah. for example, which would be a, would probably be an obvious one for ourselves, and whether that would be Berlin or Stuttgart or um, Dusseldorf, or you know, you, you know, there we've got potential clients in all of those kinds of locations. Berlin's probably the most sensible from a talent attraction perspective albeit that the client base might not be sat there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to think that we probably could get there in 18 months to two years' time in terms of building up enough of kind of critical mass being delivered in a Germany. Switzerland is very, very strong from a FMCG and consumer perspective. Mm. Um, so France, um, Holland, Belgium. So they're probably your five key locations that we would be focusing on. We'd be really, really thinking about as our next step. But yeah, we need to start delivering in them a lot more than we are at the moment before we can think about yeah. you know, dropping anchor do you there. Think, do you think you can deliver and scale it out from the UK with with foreigners? Sorry, with, with people who are from those countries as opposed to like be over there? Because some people are trying that as well, I've seen. Yeah, I think I think it can be done if you're willing to put in the the hard yards to to travel to go and see them. I think there is an, a presence element there that you need to be certainly. You, you can't just do it and then say we're going to do it all. We're going to do all our communication over 
Skype or you know Zoom or whatever your kind of video conference method is, I think you've got to actually spend the time going to the locations, the regions, and actually say, okay, we're not here today, but we are planning to be here in 2021. So what are the steps now, thinking back, that we need to do between now and then to get there? And uh, and when is the homecoming party? When is the when is David the David Jenkins going to arrive in Dublin and open up an office and let everybody celebrate his success? Uh, St. Patrick's, St. Patrick's Day, twenty twenty-five. We'll pencil it in. We'll pencil it in there. Maybe, maybe, maybe in November, if Ireland take home the Rugby World Cup, we'll we'll set up a celebratory office slash tax haven that uh, Vertical Advantage could could take advantage of. But David, you've been a fantastic guest, and you've been really open about your journey. And there's lots of great stuff in this episode. If we could just finish off by maybe, if you could give a bit of one piece of advice or a couple of pieces of advice that maybe you've received throughout the years um, for setting up a recruitment business and maybe something that you've learned that people should consider before going out yeah. on their own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think in terms of that bit of advice for, for someone who's thinking about going out on their own is that you you really, really do need to focus on, um, on, I think, three key things. What's going to happen? What are you going to do? And what's going to happen in the next hour, the next 24 hours? But then thinking about what, where you actually want to be at interim milestones along the way in that first year to 18 months. I think that's so, so key to have different points in your diary, whether it's monthly, quarterly, to take yourself off, away from the desk, have a conversation with someone, make sure you get a mentor, get a mentor really, really early and someone that will, whether it's going for a beer or whether it's, um, you know, just a coffee or a chat over the phone, that it happens regularly that you reset and you kind of make sure that you're on the right plan because it's so, so easy to get caught up doing other things and, you know, get great ideas about, you know, someone sold you something via LinkedIn that you think is fantastic. Yeah. I think you just keep that focus and, and try and find a mentor that you get on with on, on a great personal level, but also that can help you from a business perspective and, and make sure they know and understand recruitment. You know, somebody else who is successful in another sector can only help you so far. Yeah. They need to understand the pains and the pressures that we have in our job. Just on the mentor thing, um, how can somebody find one of them? What's, have you have you had any like because there's there's yeah. a lot of people selling snake oil out there, right? Yeah, yeah, and I've you know I've got I've got a, one in I've got my own non-exec that I've had for for three years who's who's a fantastic guy a guy called Steve Carter, and there are you know there are the kind of the, the groups that are going on out there, and I think a lot of people kind of like the group piece, um, you know the pirates or the elites and those kind of things. Yeah, and, we've, and had, uh, some people... we've had we've uh, had James Osborne on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, the recruitment network is the recruitment network. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, probably I didn't go down that route because I felt like I had that with Hamilton Bradshaw mm. previously. But I think there's a group, there's a you know, as a way to get started or even being involved in it with an organization like AppsCo, I think they're brilliant ways to network and find other great leaders and people who are very, very good at providing that advice. Um, I think, look, if you're good at recruitment and you're good enough to set up your own business, you should be good enough to find the right kind of people on the social networks on LinkedIn who, who provide that kind of advice and meet them, talk to them and get a feel for them. I think I 
probably met seven or eight before I decided on on Steve as our non-exec. Um, and it was, you know, partly, you know, his knowledge and experience. And it was partly the fact that, you know, we got on really, really well as individuals as well. And that, that was hugely important for me. Um, but, you know, you'll, it, different individuals will have their own criteria. David Jenkins, thank you so much for today. Brilliant. Listen, thanks a million for it. I really, really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, well done to you for the podcast as well. I've really, really enjoyed listening Great. to it. Great. Thanks so much. Take care, pal. Cheers. Well, massive thank you to David for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed speaking to him and I appreciate how candid he was about his experience. And I thought it was a really interesting journey. You know, he he gave a lot to his first company and moved through the ranks, got to a stage, then did the Hamilton Bradshaw James Can thing, which I thought that was interesting to, to, to see under the hood of that. Um, it's worked for some people. Uh, obviously, David had an experience there, which seems to, he, he was there for a couple of years. It, they got it up to a certain stage. He decided that he was better off out on his own and made that happen. And it was really interesting to get under the hood on that. I know there's only a certain amount we can kind of go into the detail on that, but he was able to take all the good stuff from his first experience and all the good stuff from the Hamilton Bradshaw experience and then create a company in his own vision using all the lessons learned and he's made it work. And I just love seeing Irish guys going abroad and making a mark, especially in our world in recruitment. And some of our best guests have been from back home and it makes me really proud to be able to share their story on here. A few, David's so successful. He was he was probably talking about exiting uh, his business with Hamilton Bradshaw while I was still pulling pints and we're the same age. So he's been in this game a long time, and it was just great to get uh, to get into the detail on all of that. So massive thank you to David for coming on the podcast. I thought he was an excellent guest. Um, I'd love to hear some feedback from, from you all if you enjoyed it. And if you know somebody else who'd make a fantastic guest, hit me up. I'm recording every day now. We did three yesterday, which probably was a bit much. But if a good guest is available, I'll make time and we'll, we'll get the content out there. I'm so thankful for all your support. And it's, uh, it's so much fun being able to get to know people like David and share their stories. And I'd like to thank you all for supporting the podcast and making it all happen. Okay, have a great weekend and we'll talk to you on Monday. Hoping to get one of my old guests back on Monday and we'll, uh, we'll maybe talk about New York and go into a bit of detail on that. All right, till then, thanks. Good luck, happy hunting.